0: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of our podcast, Voices of Africa. I'm delighted to be joined by Marie Wilkham, Director at Africa Practice, based with me in Africa Practice's head office in Khabarone, Botswana. She leads our work in regulatory affairs and public policy, and it's on that subject matter that I've invited her to talk with me today. Welcome Marie.
1: Thank you, Marcus. Delighted and excited to be here and to have this conversation with you.
0: Great. Tell us a little bit about the work that you lead in the area of of public policy and and regulatory affairs.
1: Public policy and regulatory affairs are two fields that have been around for a very long time. Um, Traditionally, corporates as well as companies in the PR industry would have practices focusing on government relations and uh, government engagement. And quite often that would be around the process of developing, designing, adopting and implementing new policy. But what has changed in recent years is that these practices have moved away from what was traditionally coined lobbyism to an area where they are not just about engagement and reactive responses to um, new policy initiatives or proposals by government, but they are uniting a cross section of different practices within corporates from communications, public relations, to strategy, innovation, and they're really becoming a practice that is leading, so it's at the forefront of businesses. And we at Africa Practice reflect that. We're not lobbyists, but we'd like to work with our clients and support our clients in really building a leading
0: function. If I may, tell me, I have a view, but for our audience's benefit, Why do you think this function has taken on greater importance within the corporate world over the last five to 10 years? I think from our vantage point, that's certainly been the case. We've seen more senior people occupy the roles of corporate affairs, public policy and regulatory affairs managers, directors. We've even seen greater budget allocations. And we've seen, as you just inferred, these people invested with a sort of hybrid skill set from advocacy to ability to uh, read and understand legislation to look at all facets really of of risk and, and reputation. Why has this been the case?
1: I think there are two factors. One is sort of an external, one is an internal and the internal very much derives from the external. Externally, especially in Africa, we've seen much more activism, regulatory and policy activism by governments in recent years. Looking at World Bank statistics, we can see that since 2013, Africa has been the continent with the highest number of new regulations adopted on a country-by-country basis. There are different reasons for that. In many countries on the continent, traditionally regulated industries were still unregulated So there was sort of a white space, simply no policy or regulation was in place. In other countries, we saw that traditional sectors such as mining, for instance, were often still regulated through legislation dating back to pre-colonial or independence time. So they were outdated in many parts. And then we've obviously seen new sectors popping up across the world, but also making their foray into into the continent, whether that's around e-commerce or fintech, digital tech, And a lot of that has been leapfrogging in Africa, much more so than on on other continents. Um, If we just look at mobile technology, for instance, and in turn necessitating more regulatory action. And then the internal is government's ability to respond to this new need for regulation. Governments have matured. There is more capacity. And there is more ability to take international best practice or examples from other countries, adopt that, and develop new policy and regulation nationally. Companies are responding to this. um, They're responding to this new environment. They have to. There is the reactive element. They have to. But there is also this proactive element that I referenced earlier. More and more companies want to be part of the process because they realize that regulation isn't going to go away they realise that regulation is not always a stumbling block. It can also be assisting in the leapfrogging. So we see more and more corporates on the continent wanting to play a role in working with governments to develop this new regulation that is very much needed and can be in support of public and private interests, provided that it is of high quality.
0: The fair design, effective regulation, a lot of value at stake, both in terms of Lost value in the event that the regulation doesn't achieve the intended consequences or even worse, has unintended consequences. A lot of value at stake in terms of if you get it right and it can open up opportunity and unlock markets for private operators in particular. I think we're talking about this facet of of regulation and public policy at a fascinating time. We're in the middle of a, a global health pandemic. This pandemic, well, no one has been immune to it. And you mentioned just now the um, the spate of regulation that we've seen over the last decade or so uh, on the continent. My own impression is that it has increased exponentially over the last uh, nine months since the onset of this coronavirus pandemic. It's a bit of a mixed bag, though, as I understand it. So in some cases, restrictions, obviously, the most notable being those travel restrictions, freedom of movements, restrictions, freedom of assembly restrictions, and others of that nature. But actually quite a lot of liberalisation, some regulations being not entirely disbanded, but um, being reduced or, or lessened in some respect to facilitate actions and operations that otherwise would struggle, and to facilitate it precisely because we're in a crisis, emergency situation. Give us a little bit of a perspective, if you will, in terms of the current regulatory landscape and how that's been affected specifically by coronavirus?
1: I think, as you've already said, we've definitely seen a spike in terms of new regulations, particularly not just policy, but regulations for the implementation thereof, particularly when it comes to border procedures, import-export procedures, and any regulation that concerns what we all now know as, as social distancing regulation. I think it's none of us knew nine months ago, and now we all associate something with it, and business definitely associates very stringent regulation with it that impacts the way they can operate. What is interesting to note is that very quickly, just looking at some of the markets here in the region, be it South Africa, Zambia, be it Mozambique, where we saw quite hard lockdowns in some of the countries very early on. South Africa took very quick action, for instance. In those countries. We didn't quite expect things to go back to normal for quite a while, given the, the strictness of the lockdown. And then after about four to six weeks, more and more of our clients reported that regulators were back to business as usual, that they were meeting them in, in, in boardrooms discussing license renewals, fee renewal. And there was no consideration of COVID-19. There was no consideration of potentially easing the burden for business to take into account how their bottom line was being affected by by the lockdown. In fact, what we saw happening is that the bill of a lot of these compensations and regulatory actions doubled or tripled or even quadrupled in some instances. So regulators were back to business as usual very quickly. And at the same time, there was the renewed and now even increased urgency to generate revenue for governments, given the high cost of COVID-19. And that has resulted in a very interesting dynamic at country level. What I would also add in terms of how this sort of regulatory landscape has evolved, we've seen this sort of three risk determinants of policy and regulation, volatility, ambiguity, and complexity, Mm. play out in a very different way. So all of a sudden, for instance, complexity in terms of the stakeholder environment has increased in many countries because decision making has often been an attempt to make it more feasible and quicker has been pushed down to county level or provincial level so all of a sudden our clients have to engage with additional stakeholders that weren't on the map before. we, we,
0: We know how busy we are in Kenya really as a consequence of the change in the constitution a few years ago and devolution there where now decisions are made at the county and municipality level and significant budgets held there as well in a way that previously they weren't.
1: Exactly and especially in countries like Kenya where it's a fairly new development in the country, so where stakeholders are still finding on their ground, they, are, they themselves are still figuring out how the processes work, how mm. the rules work, who relates to whom, how. All of a sudden you find them all taking action at the same time because there's an urgency to take action. Mm. So you have this flurry of new regulations that often doesn't quite fit with mm. each other, so one regulation at, at provincial level doesn't quite match up with what's coming from federal level. Yeah. Um, and the procedures as a consequence are becoming quite ambiguous in, in as well um, and then the outcome as a consequence is more ambiguous as well. Mm. But as you said, there is an opportunity for some regulation being taken to ease certain action and I think that's particularly the case on innovation. Unfortunately, we've also seen some governments trying to take that action but then not being aware of unintended consequences because the action taken too quickly it's not quite brought through especially in the innovation and technology space governments are still understanding learning to understand it themselves we don't necessarily have technology experts in most government agencies so the regulation that is being designed doesn't always meet its objective so back to the sort of three criteria of quality regulation mm. um, efficiency effectiveness and balance Those three criteria can't be met if there is not a comprehensive consultation process behind it. So there's an opportunity. Governments are trying to support that sector, but it is really important that industry plays a very active role in consultations to ensure that these unintended consequences do not materialize, so to ensure that government really knows what what are going to be the consequences for different sectors, for different actors, for different types of products and markets.
0: So that's what's generating the the changes that you mentioned at the outset internally within companies and the beefing up of their corporate affairs, regulatory affairs, public policy practice to respond to these changes in their external operating environment. And the need to get on the front foot, be proactive in dialoguing with policymakers and, and regulators.
1: That definitely, and this is something new around the world. We've seen that in the European Union, we've seen that in the US for a very long time. It's because the rules of engagement are maturing in Africa. Mm. Um, so it's also the way governments are regulating the engagement and the consultation processes. It's a lot less about individual stakeholders and a lot more about public consultation and about individual forums, there is more and more engagement through organized business. And that requires our clients to be organized themselves internally. I would say that looking at our clients, a minority of them have managed to build a leading government affairs and public policy and regulatory affairs function in-house. The majority of them still have it as sort of an onset or add-on to the communications department, Mm. the public relations department, or in some other clients, the risk department. But we find very few clients where all of that speaks to each other, and public policy and regulatory affairs really plays that, that role as a leading function that can also inform innovation and strategy departments in terms of there is an opportunity coming up in this market because there is talk about this and this and that regulation. Recycling, I think, is a good example. It can be a risk. You have to change the way you operate if your packaging material is affected, but it can also be an opportunity if you think ahead and you plan ahead. So it's that that role that the function can play. And some clients manage it very well. Other clients are not yet. But what is exciting is that all of our clients like working with us on building these leading functions, really helping them to get into that core position.
0: You mentioned just now um, plastics and packaging. Tell our audience, if you can, where's the greatest burden of regulation coming from? Is it in the area of environment or... Given that we're in a health crisis, is it in the area of health? Or um, given that many of our countries, sub-Saharan African countries, are now experiencing a highly indebted situation, is it coming in the area of tax and finance? Tell us a little bit more about what the drivers are.
1: I think what Kemi said is across the board for all industry players the day-to-day regulation continues to be the highest burden. So what uh, the World Bank, for instance, often phrases or assesses under the ease of doing business, Mm. the number of forms and paperwork that is still required, the number of actors that they have to use. The compliance. Compliance, yeah. yeah, Compliance, the way the compliance system continues Mm. to be structured. In terms of new regulation, it was already the case before the pandemic, but it's definitely been reinforced by that. Anything that makes money is currently a driver of regulation. But what we see is that it's no longer just additional taxes. It's no longer an increase in VAT, an increase in excise taxes or additional duties. What we see is that it is fiscal measures that are linked to a public policy objective. So recycling is a case in point there. Extended producer responsibility So having taxes related to a public policy objective in terms of the materials that are being used and the amount of material that is is recycled and being put back into the circular economy. Same for excise taxes that are implemented with a view to not just increasing the price of a certain product but instilling a certain behavior in in consumers. And then similarly on on the digital taxation, I mean digital taxations are implemented with a view to ensuring that there is a taxation of certain players on the continent. It's at that intersect where it becomes the burden is the greatest because it gives a legitimacy and a justification to governments, but we often see that that's where the unintended consequences that I spoke to earlier are mm. the greatest, because both are very complex in Those those are very complex measures, and just taking an international best practice, practice and implementing it locally doesn't always work. Locally, consumers behave differently, industries behave differently, structures are differently. Again, recycling is a very good case in point. The informal economies that exist in different African countries are quite unique, and international best practice is not always the best choice in order to see those changes in, in behaviour happen. But for governments, often they do see the opportunity to raise revenue with it and are very quick at implementing certain measures.
0: You mentioned that the revenue-raising measures that are a clear priority for governments all across the region today. But I think we shouldn't forget that at the onset of this pandemic, Actually, african governments were pretty fast and progressive introducing tax relief measures, both for the individual, but also for the corporate sector as well. And so it's just a a rebalancing act that is inevitable, I think, given the really negative impact on economic activities that these forced lockdowns have provoked.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's why these measures that are sort of at that intersect are so popular at the moment, because governments feel that they can, as you say, build two birds with stone.
0: Give us an example, of, if, if you may. You talked about packaging.
1: Yeah, so definitely the extended producer responsibility mm. on packaging and recycling is a very popular measure. It's currently being discussed and implemented in Zambia, Mozambique, South Africa, to name just a few here in the region, um, but also in Kenya. Um, and uh, we definitely know that there are discussions happening across the continent as well, often as a continuation of previous Discussions on the ban of plastic bags, for instance, mm. that um, currently existent in more than half of all African countries. And all of these bans have come up in the last five to seven years. So it's a completely yeah. new area that's been moving very quickly. Extended producer responsibility is essentially saying that The producer of a certain packaging material, let's use plastic as an example, let's use plastic bottle as an example, that the producer of that material of the plastic bottle has a responsibility to also recycle it. Now you can take that to, um, you can take that very fine, you can have mandatory recycling as you have in certain European countries. But you can also have more soft introductory measures. What we've seen in a lot of these discussions in various African countries, be it South Africa, Mozambique, Zambia, Kenya, is that the original draft from government introduces ideas that are scientifically impossible We've had cases where some of these countries have suggested using only biodegradable plastic. There there is no scientific technical solution for that anywhere in the world at the moment. It cannot be developed Mm -hmm. within the next few years. We've seen seen measures being introduced that would essentially outsource government responsibility and municipality responsibility completely to the private sector. Mm -hmm. And we've seen measures being introduced that would essentially destroy what exists as in partially informal, in other cases formal, but at a very micro business level, a sector that is a very important income opportunity for a lot of people. And the unintended consequence could be that if that business then goes to medium sized enterprises with much lower job creation potential, less potential for lower skilled people. And you might even see a situation where all of a sudden a country has to import Plastics in order to meet its production and recycling targets nationally because not enough is being collected and produced. So, governments have an interest in that because they want to address the pollution burden that undoubtedly exists across the continent. They have an interest because it can potentially bring about revenue. But if it isn't thought through well, you will have all of these unintended consequences that will affect many, many people in the economy and potentially create in in job losses and not meet the two objectives in terms of addressing the pollution issue and bringing in revenue because the government might be losing revenue on, on other
0: sides. Well, Thank you for that overview. One characteristic of this coronavirus pandemic has been a more interventionist state. Both because of need to must emergency situation requiring a state response, but also I think because civilian populations really turned to their governments and implored them to, to respond in, in all sorts of ways. I'm interested to chat to you about how we think the role of the state might change in our societies as a consequence of sort of this new normal. Or do we think that the state will be comfortable receding back to the position we were in at the very outset of the year, when actually creeping liberalisation has been such a theme and trend over the last decade, I would suggest, and where consumers in particular turned to the private sector for solutions to actually day-to-day challenges that they were faced and that in some more industrialised societies would be, would be the purview and responsibility of the state. You mentioned municipalities' roles. Well, in some areas, it's private sector providers who are picking up waste and trash or, or delivering water role. Where do you see that dynamic moving beyond the pandemic?
1: I think it's highly country-specific, just as the status with which countries entered the pandemic was highly country-specific. So we might find in South Africa with a very large public sector sector many state-owned enterprises that have been functioning suboptimally, to say the least, and uh, have been considered a problem in in many ways. We might find a country like South Africa where liberalization might actually be accelerated because of, A, the, the revenue burden and it just no longer being an option to continue as was, but also because industry has made it quite clear during the pandemic that Government can count on them. They can mm. count on them to come to aid. They can count on them to take action. Industry has been um, has been very clear in recognizing that this is it's a matter of society and it can only be resolved if everyone comes together mm. and everybody plays their role. But in turn industry has also made it clear that they're not willing to go back to government just taking decisions. And then you'll find other countries where, as you just mentioned, citizens have for a long time looked at industry and private sector actors or NGOs and and civil society organizations to fulfill certain functions that traditionally we would expect to be government's responsibility. And I think in those countries, the opposite has happened. The government has suddenly been turned to to say, but what, what do you do? How can you help us? Whether that's been around food parcels or just simply taking taking decisions in terms of lockdown, in terms of guidance on what is the appropriate degree on, on, on social distancing, but also on um, the whole discussion of importation of PPEs, etc. And in those countries, you might see the government stepping up and becoming slightly stronger. I think ultimately, um, and we've known this for a long time, and we've, we've advocated for this for a long time, ultimately, the solution is at the intersect. It's at the intersect of industry and government, and it's at intersect of that social contract between all players and i think all countries no matter where they started ultimately will will find their way to that to that spot some countries will do it faster other countries will do
0: it slower so you and i have operated in this space at the intersect of, of industry and government for a long time now we have our own insights and views but i'm interested to air those together as you mentioned, in some countries, it's very particular, but it's dependent on the country. The country's history, the state and strength of institutions, the nature and type of government and democracy, the strength of the press, all sorts of different factors. But the truth is that in several countries, if I look around, there's still uh, an inherent mistrust between industry and, and government, between the regulated and, and the regulator. I hope that this pandemic has helped to bridge that, and only time will tell. But in the process of the important. Aspect of consultation that you refer to, and the need for collaboration between private and public sector and civil society organisations to find solutions to challenges confronting our, our. Do you see and envisage a more formal process of consultation emerging in many many African states, or will this be just um, informal and and sort of what I call customary?
1: Hmm. I think it again depends very much on on, on the country, but. Um I think already before the pandemic, we saw more and more countries implementing rules and guidelines on how consultation processes should look like. Sometimes it was lip service, sometimes it was just word on paper, but we've definitely seen a trend towards more consultation and again, especially consultation between organized business and government. And I think on this organized business, one really important point to make is that Coming back to what I said at the very outset, many governments, many countries didn't yet have regulation in place or had very outdated regulations dating back to to pre-colonial times. Same goes for industry in the sense that many countries don't yet have organized business institutions and they are developing at the moment as well. And just as regulation there's that quality organized business and there's good quality organized business we've known for, for decades already in certain countries you have an organized business that really is just one individual who has a vested interest in the industry and it's easier to lobby under the mantle of an organized business even though everybody in the country knows that it's, it's one individual lobbying for corporate interests and individual interests and nothing else so I think the consultation and the quality of consultation will also depend on the quality of how industry organizes itself and how transparent they are. And uh, one point that was made by one of our partners in the conversation yesterday is this, this point of forum shopping, which we know from international level. So industry one day associating with that business type and the next day with that business type and going around in terms of dancing on the ball wherever they, they find their interest best suited at the moment. Um, and that makes consultations very difficult as well. So as much as um, I think there's a really important role for for business to be involved, And to to play an active role, I think there's also a responsibility on business to take that up responsibly.
0: And on that note, I'd love to thank Marie Wilker, Associate Director at Africa Practice, leading our regulatory affairs and public policy work, for her time and her insights today. Thanks very much, Marie. Thanks, Marcus, for
1: the conversation.